0: Sit thou by my bed, and here I think the very latest counsel that ever I shall breathe. By what bypaths and indirect crooked ways I met this crown, and I myself know well how troublesome it sat upon my head. To thee it shall descend with better quiet, better opinion, better confirmation. For all the soil of the achievement goes with me into the earth. It seemed in me, but as an honor snatched with boisterous hand, and I had many living to upbraid, my gain of it by their assistances, which daily grew to quarrel into bloodshed, wounding supposed peace. All these bold fears thou seest with peril, I have answered. For all my reign hath been but as a scene acting that argument. And now my death changes the mood, for what in me was purchased falls upon thee in a more fairer sort. So thou the garland wearest successively. Yet though thou stand'st more than I could do, thou art not firm enough, since griefs are green, and all my friends, which thou must make thy friends, have but their stings and teeth newly taken out, by whose fell working I was first advanced, and by whose power I well might lodge a fear, to be again displaced, which to avoid I cut them off, and had a purpose now to lead out many to the Holy Land, lest rest and lying still might make them look too near unto my state. Therefore, my Harry, be it thy course to busy giddy minds, with foreign quarrels, that action hence borne out. May waste the memory of the former days. More would I, but my lungs are wasted so that strength of speech is utterly denied me. How I came by the crown, O oh God, forgive and grant it may with thee in true peace live. William Shakespeare's Henry the Part Two, Act Four. Greetings, everybody. CJ here. Yes, I do still exist. I've been struggling in many ways in recent months, and I won't get too much into it here. I am still working behind the scenes on my giant first installment in the World War I propaganda in the U.S. series. The first episode, of course, is going to be centered on the British propaganda operation in the United States, which was massive and which ran from the summer of 1914, basically when the war started in Europe, until April of 1917, when the U.S. finally officially intervened in the war. And that's going to be a big, long, massive episode. I've been working on it for a long, long time. In fact, I've got several segments of it already recorded, and I think I'm already up over two hours worth of material, and I still have a ways to go. So this is going to be one of those, you know, big multi-hour episodes. But anyway, I decided that while I'm still working on that thing... I might record a shorter episode or two in the meantime, just so you guys still hear something new from me. In addition to, I think I still have one more of the vintage DHP History of the U.S. Dollar Series to reissue, which I'll probably do in the next week or two. But I figured I would do something new, a new episode, just so you all would get something from me while I'm working on this massive World War I propaganda episode. And I decided that this episode, and I have a few other potential ones in mind to do over the next few weeks, would be on things that have some relevance to current events, which are mostly terrible, and which are also the sorts of things where I don't need extensive new research and notes where I can kind of riff a little bit, you know, maybe put together a few little basic bullet points and some quotations and whatever, and talk about some history that unfortunately has a lot of relevance, in my opinion— to current events so this episode is going to be called be It thy course to busy giddy minds and even though i started with an extensive quote from shakespeare much of what i'm going to say actually ties into the origins of world war ii and by extension the potential origins to potential world war iii that seems closer to breaking out now than at any point in my lifetime at least so, in World War I propaganda, World War I was often talked about, say, in British and Allied and eventually American propaganda, World War I was talked about as a very simplistic morality tale. These pure bad guys, just single-handedly, 100% caused this war because they're aggressive assholes, and the other side was pure as the driven snow, had no desire to go to war, did everything they could to avoid it, had nothing but the best intentions, and was just, you know, reluctantly forced to defend themselves. Now, that simplistic narrative about World War One has been soundly debunked at this point for basically like a century. But the narrative on World War II, that if anything is even more simplistic and one-sided, still endures. Now, don't get me wrong. For sure, the pure good versus pure evil, here's the aggressors all on one side, that narrative is closer to reality in regard to World War II than in regard to World War I. But still, it's more complicated than the vast majority of people perceive it. And by the way, none of this is to take away any of the horrific things that were done by the Axis governments in the 30s and 40s. None of this is to take away the fact that, yes, in World War II, much more so than in the case of World War I, there's a lot more blame on one side than the other. So don't misunderstand. But even so, if you ever really deeply research the origins of World War II... You'll find that even with World War II, if you dig into the nitty-gritty details of where this conflict came from, you find out it's not quite 100% of the blame all on one side of the conflict. And furthermore, you find out that there's all kinds of motivations for the various governments that got involved in World War II to get involved, and not all of them, even on the Allied side, are just, you know, pure taking-a-stance-on-morality-type motivations. So I very much believe in the idea, and many other far more, you know, prestigiously credentialed historians than myself also would make the same argument, that the single biggest factor that caused World War II to happen was World War I itself. And in particular, the way that World War I ended, and the way that several major powers were extremely dissatisfied, to put it mildly, with the way the end of World War I played out. Now, first and foremost was, of course, Germany, which the Treaty of Versailles, and I won't get into the the details of it too much here, just for the sake of time, but even some Allied leaders at the time thought the Treaty of Versailles was extremely unfair and one-sided against Germany really took them to the cleaners, raked them over the coals, rubbed their nose in the whole thing. Like, really, if you were trying to piss off a defeated opponent to the point where they'd be spoiling for revenge at the soonest opportunity, if you were trying to do that on purpose, you couldn't have done much better than what the victorious Allied leaders inflicted upon Germany at the end of World War I. So, for sure, I think that the single biggest factor that caused World War II to happen was the way that World War I ended. And in addition to Germany being just raked over the coals, you also had Italy and Japan dissatisfied with the way World War I ended as well. Now, in case you don't know, Germany and Japan in World War I were actually on the same side as the British, French, and Americans, and they were against the Germans. So, obviously, the, the opposite side of where they would find themselves or where they would place themselves in World War II. Now, they were by no means screwed over to the degree that Germany was at the end of World War I. They were on the winning side, so something like that wasn't going to happen to them. But both the German and Japanese governments felt like they didn't get, essentially, a fair cut of the fruits of victory. Now, both the German and Japanese governments had largely gotten into World War I for very self-interested motivations, largely having to do with territorial expansion. So, you know, they kind of jumped on the bandwagon thinking, all right, we're pretty sure that the Central Powers are going to lose this, And the British and French, etc., are going to win, so we're going to throw our lot in with them, and then we're going to leverage being on the winning side to grab up some territories that we've been coveting for a while anyway. So, ultimately, the German and Japanese governments did not get the territorial loot that they coveted. Uh, out of World War One. And so they became disillusioned with the British and French who, let's face it, if you go and study the, the various, you know, the, the colonies that were handed out that were handed over from one side to the other at the end of World War One, clearly the British and French got the lion's share. Like they just grabbed up, you know, everything they could, both from the defeated Germans and then also from the Ottoman Empire, which was on the German side in World War One and fell apart as a result of the war as well. So you had the Germans treated very unmagnanimously in defeat, and you had the Italians and Japanese, at least from their perspective, not given a fair share of the fruits of victory. And so they began over the course of the next couple decades to coalesce into what we know as the Axis powers. But if I'm right, and lots of other expert historians with fancier credentials than me are right as well, on this question that the primary thing that caused World War II to happen was the way World War I Wrapped up, then, you know, if that's the ultimate cause, then we're still left with the question of what particular proximate cause or causes caused World War II to break out exactly when and how it did. So now we're getting into more immediate or proximate factors, right? In other words, okay, if I'm right that World War II was virtually inevitable given the way World War I ended. Then, why specifically did World War II break out at the end of the 1930s? Why didn't it break out five or ten years earlier? Why didn't it break out five, ten, fifteen, twenty years later than it actually did, right? Why didn't World War II, you know, not break out until 1950? Or why didn't it break out in, like, 1925, Now, reality is way more complicated than even the most nuanced narrative, so I'll say for sure there's a whole bunch of particular proximate factors that caused World War II to break out when and how it did. But in my mind, there's a very strong case to be made that the single biggest factor that caused World War II to break out when it did, and not break out earlier or later than it actually did, is a factor that often gets not enough emphasis, and sometimes gets left out entirely of a lot of kind of mainstream propagandistic narratives of World War II, and that factor is the Great Depression. I simply don't think it is at all a coincidence that World War II broke out after about a decade of crushing global economic depression. I don't think that's a coincidence. So the idea that the story of World War Two is simply a pure morality tale. And that the only reason that the Axis governments went on the war path was just that they were evil. And don't get me wrong, those governments were evil. But if you think like, that's it, they just like woke up one morning like we're evil. Let's go attack people. It's not quite so simple, even with regimes that are that bad. So, I think there were a lot of motives for World War II on the parts of the various governments that got into it. And not all of those motives are the most admirable, even on the the Allied side, which, you know, overall, I think most people would agree that even if they're familiar with some of the bad things the Allied governments did in World War II, and even if they're familiar with some of the ulterior motives of some of the Allied governments in World War II, still, I think most people would say, on balance, right? The Axis were more the aggressors and, you know, did more bad things during the war, etc. So fair enough, but I think there's a lot of often overlooked or left out entirely, motivations and factors driving the various governments to wage war in World War II, And not all of the kind of self-interested, cynical, ulterior motives were on the axis side. In fact, I think a lot of the motivation for a lot of the political leaders that got involved in World War II, at least at the beginning, were economic in nature or political but closely related to economic. So, very big one that most people who are even mildly familiar with World War II will know and are probably thinking of is controlling territory and resources, kind of that old school sort of stuff, right? So, you know, Germany had this idea of they needed Lebensraum, and this was partly based on their experience of being starved out by the British. And you could argue, you know, that's an economic motivation. And it's similar with Japan, even though they hadn't, you know, been on the losing side of World War I, but, you know, they had various ambitions to take over lots of land and resources in Asia. So that's pretty well known. I don 't feel the need to you know reiterate all that. Any halfway decent book about World War II is going to bring that stuff up if they're talking about the origins of the war. But specifically, I think there's a lot more links between the Great Depression and World War II and why World War II broke out specifically when it did than is often realized or acknowledged. And here, I'm going to tip my hat to, I can't honestly remember which book or articles or whatever, but somewhere many years ago, I read some of Murray Rothbard's historical coverage of the economic history of the 1930s, and he talks about the economic warfare of the 1930s and the way it directly led to The real, you know, physical violent warfare in the 1940s. So there's really sort of two ways in which I think the Great Depression leads you almost inevitably to World War II breaking out after it had been raging for about a decade. So the first one I already kind of alluded to a minute or two ago, and this is sort of what happens when I do one of these episodes with very minimal notes and, you know, just a basic idea of what I'm going to talk about, kind of jump around a little bit and whatever, Maybe occasionally repeat myself a little bit. But anyway, the first way in which I would link World War II and its outbreak to a decade of prior economic depression is summed up by kind of like an equation, which is currency wars plus trade wars tend to lead to real wars. And I forget where I first heard it kind of articulated in that fashion, but, you know, as far as I know, I didn't make up that way of sort of summarizing the concept. I'm pretty sure I got it from somewhere, but, you know, got it from somewhere 10 or 15 or more years ago, so I'm not 100% sure where I might have first heard or read it articulated that way. But throughout the 1930s, there was a lot of currency wars and trade wars going on in the global economy. So prior to World War I, the economy was actually, the global economy was actually fairly well on the path towards globalization, in large part as the legacy of the British Empire being the closest thing to a superpower there was globally in the 19th century. And the fact that for much of the 19th century, once they started to repeal uh, the Corn Laws and some of their other protectionist uh, laws in their empire and repeal you know some of the old mercantilist laws and things like this, The British Empire, through much of the latter part of the 19th century and into the early years of the 20th century, pursued a policy of almost pure free trade. You know, probably as close to full on free trade as any major power has pursued in terms of trade policy in modern world history, at least than I could think of. And, you know, maybe there's some little tiny country somewhere, I don't know, I don't know the history of Luxembourg in detail, you know, maybe somebody like that has followed a very free trade policy in modern history, but, you know, in terms of, like, major powers, the British Empire was very much a free trade empire. And that was probably one of the most positive things you could say about it, right? Like, all empires, you know, they did a lot of bad things, had a lot of bad effects, but they also, you know, did do some good things and have some good effects. Now, I'm not saying that... The good outweighs the bad or that the good things that the British Empire did then justify, you know, in many cases, holding people under your authority uh, without their consent by force. Like, I still don't think that makes that okay, even if you are doing some things that are benefiting those people. You know, I don't think you get to be a paternalist, involuntary paternalist ruler over somebody, even if, by objective standards, you're being a relatively benign paternalist. So you had a fair amount of globalization of the world economy in large measure fostered by the British Empire, the biggest economic force uh, for much of the 19th century, pursuing a policy of free trade. And then obviously World War One completely disrupted all of that trade and globalization that was happening in the decades leading up to World War One. And things might have started to revert back in the direction of freer global trade in the 20s. And I think in some ways they did a little bit here and there, but of course then the Great Depression came along at the end of the 1920s, and that created a lot of economic warfare, and whatever small steps were starting to be made back towards freer trade in the 1920s quickly reversed, and things went in a very anti-free trade direction over the course of the Great Depression. As the major governments of the world's economic powers, all one by one in various ways and to varying degrees pursued policies to try and benefit their economy at the expense of their competitors in sort of a zero-sum mentality. And the two main ways that governments uh, waged economic warfare against each other in the 1930s were currency wars and trade wars. And you can make an argument, I suppose, that a currency war is just simply a particular subset or a particular type of trade war or a particular type of trade war tactic. It seems to be a pretty strong truism throughout recorded human history that societies and governments that do a lot of business with each other are less likely to go to full-fledged war with each other. Now, I'm sure if you dug through, you might find one exception per, you know, every 500 years or something like this, but it really seems like countries that do a lot of business with each other just don't tend to fight each other. They usually, they might occasionally get into a dispute about this or that, but they usually will step back from the brink, if they even approach it, and figure out a way to solve their differences peacefully. And this tendency is often summed up by the phrase, when goods cross borders, armies don't. And just in general, the more economically interdependent two states are on each other, the less likely they are to fight. And the converse is true as well. The more two states avoid and prevent trade and business and exchange between each other, the more likely they are to go to war. Now, it's not to say that war is inevitable in those circumstances, but it's far more likely than it is between two states that do a lot of business and a lot of trade with each other. So, if you look at the 1930s, once the Great Depression really got rolling, and by the way, it was global, once the Great Depression really got rolling, it didn't take much time for all of the major economic powers of the world to go in a very protectionist, economic nationalist direction, and in some cases even to try to go towards autarky, which is trying to make your country as self-sufficient as possible which is usually not a very good idea. Sometimes a particularly large state with a lot of its own resources can do a little bit better, but even so, they're going to be poorer overall than if they engaged in freer trade. And to try and pursue autarky if you're a small state is usually a recipe for disaster. If you don't believe me, check out North Korea. Now, they do have some sorts of trade or some such thing with China in various ways, but North Korea is probably the closest there is in the present era to a state that's trying to pursue something very close to autarky. So, one of the ways in which the various governments of the world's major economic powers tried to wage war against each other in the 1930s was with currency wars. So the currency wars that happen over the course of the 1930s involve the world's major industrial powers trying to manipulate the value of their currencies in order to gain trade advantages over their competitors. Now, the way they do this might seem counterintuitive if you've never really studied or thought about the way international trade works. And this is kind of an old school mercantilist move. So the idea is that one government will try to manipulate the value of its currency downward, in other words, to inflate its currency. And this supposedly will help it to gain a trade advantage over its competitors. Now, that might seem counterintuitive. Again, if you've never really studied this aspect of economics before, you would think, well, how in the world does it give a country and a government an advantage to deliberately devalue its currency? Won't that make them poorer?" And yeah, in some ways it does. But I'll give you the superficial, flawed as it is, the superficial mercantilist argument as to why this is a smart move. So the thinking is, let's just, you know, take a two-country example. To illustrate the point. But let's suppose the United States government devalues the dollar relative to the British pound. Right. That means the dollar is weaker than the pound. It means that the pound can now buy more dollars. Right. So the theory is that this will make. Consumers in the UK less likely to buy British goods and more likely to buy American goods because the American goods will be relatively cheaper because you can buy more dollars per pound and ultimately you're going to be, you know, having to convert to dollars or at least the importer is going to have to be converting to dollars in order to import the American goods that then British consumers will buy. So from the perspective of British consumers, it's just like all of a sudden American goods are way more inexpensive than British goods. So people are going to vote with their dollars and buy more American, right? And the theory is that'll then be good for America's uh, manufacturers and exporters and so forth, right? Now, the problem with a lot of these theories, of course, I mean, there's a bunch of problems with this theory, but one of them is that it's assuming that the opponent governments are just going to kind of like keep doing what they're doing, that they're not going to react. And in reality, they're going to react in various ways. They might Try to match or even exceed your devaluation, and so you often end up in the situation where governments are kind of racing to the bottom, right? Each is trying to out-inflate their currency relative to the other, and you get this race to the bottom, where in an effort to try and stimulate their exporters, they are running down the value of their currency. And in the long run, that's going to have negative effects for your country's citizenry, if you're constantly devaluing your currency. And in addition to that, the country that you're trying to or countries, really, because it's, you know, more than just two in real life uh, governments relating to each other via trade and currency values and whatever, that they can respond not just with attempting to devalue their own currency to match or exceed your devaluation, but they can respond and retaliate with various other methods against your business, against your trade and commerce, which brings us to trade wars. Which, again, as I think I mentioned a little while ago, you could argue that currency wars are just one particular type or tactic of trade war, where you're specifically trying to gain trade advantages over competitors by manipulating your currency. But the broader category of trade wars involves many other potential things you could do. And, of course, one of the most common is high tariffs. But you can also have things like flat-out bans on certain goods from certain countries. Um, You can have things like import quotas, other restrictions, right? The most common, I think, historically has usually been protective tariffs. But, you know, it can become more blatant and heavy-handed than that. So, there were trade wars raging throughout the 1930s in various ways. And the United States actually really kicked off the trade wars of the 1930s with the famous Smoot-Hawley or Hawley-Smoot tariff, which uh, I forget the exact year, it was early 30s towards the latter half of the Herbert Hoover administration, I believe it was 1930 or 31 that the Smoot-Hawley tariff was passed, but it jacked tariffs on goods coming into the United States up to extremely high uh, levels. They might have even been record levels for some uh, categories of things. And this is done under the classic, you know, protectionist argument, which, you know, the Trumpians have most recently uh, resurrected, which is, well, you just jack up tariffs on imports coming in, and that forces people to buy American, right? Now, there's all kinds of problems with this. I mean, Adam Smith debunked this, economically speaking, all the way back in 1776, pretty handily in his book, The Wealth of Nations. And there are a bunch of reasons why in the big picture and in the long run, protectionism ultimately tends to hurt a country's own consumers, broadly speaking. Yeah. Can it benefit certain particular industries and special interest groups and whatever in a country? Yes. But it's kind of like a classic public choice scenario where you could say, Oh, this one industry is suddenly getting stimulated by having this uh, protection from foreign competition or whatever. But broadly speaking, in the long run, your overall consumer base is going to be harmed by having fewer options to purchase, and the options that they do have will probably be artificially expensive, and in some cases may also go down in quality, because if you shield uh, countries' industries from foreign competition, that reduces their overall competition. Like, yeah, they might still be competing with each other for the domestic market, but there's less competition, because they're not also competing with uh, foreign manufacturers, and so, in general, it becomes more cartelized or potentially even monopolistic, where quality will over the long run tend to go down while price tends to go up. By the way, this is why anti-tariff activists in the U.S. in the late 19th and early 20th century would often say things like, the tariff is the mother of the trusts, something like that, because they understood that, yeah. It's not eliminating competition because there's still domestic competition, but it's significantly reducing the degree to which American manufacturers are subjected to competition. So anyway, and, um, you know, there's all kinds of economic uh, problems with protectionism and other forms of trade wars and so forth. But a big one is similar to the problem with currency wars, which is your competitors, right? Other industrialized nations over whom you're trying to get a competitive advantage, their governments aren't going to just stay static, right? There's, you know, a lot of ways to express this. You you'll always want to understand when you're dealing with individual human beings or entire nations or anything in between, people are not static. They're dynamic and they're going to respond to what you do. So you can't ever just assume, oh, I'm going to do this thing to this person, or I'm going to change my policy to these people, and they're just going to keep right along doing what they're doing, right? It's like, no, Uh, if what you're doing affects them in any way, their behavior is going to change, right? This is summed up by uh, the famous quote from Napoleon, something like, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Or as Mike Tyson put it a little bit more bluntly. Everyone's got a plan going into a fight till they get punched in the face. So if, for example, the United States starts slapping all kinds of protectionist tariffs and import restrictions and so forth, let's say on Japanese goods. Well, the Japanese government is probably not just going to, like, keep everything as is status quo. They're probably going to respond by slapping similar or even worse things against American goods coming into their country. And so it's a case of, like, you know, everybody is retaliating against each other. And in the long run, everybody is shooting their own economies in the foot. And while it definitely is incorrect to blame the Great Depression on the Smoot-Hawley Tariff because the timeline doesn't add up because the tariff wasn't passed until the Depression had already been going for like two years. Nonetheless, I think it's pretty fair to say that the Smoot-Hawley Tariff probably exacerbated the Depression in the U.S. and in some ways around the world because it kicked off a series of trade wars and retaliatory tariffs and restrictions on international trade. As one economic power after another slapped tariffs and other restrictions in place on their own commerce. And ultimately, even the British Empire, which had been committed and had mostly been, with a few exceptions here and there, but mostly been pretty consistently committed to free trade in most regards since, oh, I forget the exact year when they really started to implement free trade, but I want to say it was the 1840s that the British Empire started pursuing free trade policies. Even the British Empire in the mid-1930s abandoned free trade and started trying to create an exclusive trading zone in the British Empire. So this idea that, you know, there would be relatively light restrictions, if any, on, say, I don't know, New Zealand and the UK doing business with each other, right? Or Canada and Australia doing business with each other, right? So that trade. Within the empire would be relatively free, but they started slapping tariffs and other things to try and keep out so that, for example, it would be way more easy and inexpensive for, let's say, Australians to import goods from Canada, which was still part of the British Empire and Commonwealth at the time, than to import them from the United States, even though perhaps under conditions of free trade, the American goods might be better and or cheaper. And it's not just true that when goods cross borders, armies don't. It's also true kind of the opposite, that when nations and governments are waging economic warfare against each other off and on for an extended period of time, it tends to simply exacerbate the tensions and negative attitudes and mistrusts and even hatreds between those different nations and governments. This is part of why I find what's going on right now so alarming. You know, things like protectionism, but even more drastic things like embargoes and import bans and sanctions and all these sorts of things, they don't tend to, they're often sold as the alternative to conflict, right? They're like, oh, we're going to throw an embargo or sanctions or whatever on this government we don't like. And we're doing this because, you know, we want to punish them and try and change their behavior, and, you know, this is a better alternative than full-fledged war. Well, in the short run, that might be true. And even setting aside all the many different arguments against this policy on both moral and economic grounds, historically speaking, these sorts of policies very often, sooner or later, lead to actual conflict. And all you have to do is study the several years of economic warfare that the U.S. government waged against Japan in the mid to late 30s that led up to Pearl Harbor. It's like those things are directly connected. The Japanese were specifically motivated to attack Pearl Harbor by the U.S. economic warfare. And unfortunately, because I didn't have the time to do it, I wasn't able to do uh, Pearl Harbor coverage, you know, not just on Pearl Harbor itself, but on the lead up to it. Um, Back in December of 2021, I intended to, but I just couldn't find the time in late 2021 because of work stuff, because of getting ready to move, a bunch of other things. I couldn't find the time to do enough research and put together enough notes to do it, so maybe I'll get it done for the 81st anniversary in December of 2022. Who knows? No promises. But... It's not like Japan attacked the U.S. in spite of the sanctions and embargoes or whatever. Like, that was exactly why they decided to take the move that even many Japanese leaders thought was kind of a risky strategic gamble of attacking the U.S. But they felt like, due to the economic screws being put to them, they felt like they were backed into a corner and kind of had no choice but to lash out. And as I'll probably cover whenever I do finally get to some uh, detailed coverage of Pearl Harbor, you know, whether it's a miniseries or one giant episode or however it ends up working out. And, you know, don't expect it anytime soon, right? Like minimum six months from now. But anyway, as I'll no doubt mention when I do finally get around to covering the lead up to Pearl Harbor, there's a fair amount of evidence that FDR and some of his top people in his administration, they knew damn well. That they were probably provoking Japan into lashing out when they were putting the economic screws to them. The idea that they were just completely blindsided, like, oh, my God, who could have predicted that they would eventually attack us if we keep uh, trying to strangle their economy? It's like, what do you think they were going to do? Right. And then that raises the question of why weren't you better prepared, given all the evidence and all the reasons you should have had to know that probably you were going to provoke a response? eventually with economic warfare and what's the most obvious thing for the Japanese to attack once they finally decide from their perspective they need to fight. It's pretty clear what their number one target would be. But anyway, so currency wars and trade wars lead to real wars is one way I would connect World War II to the Great Depression. And one more thing I'll say on this is if you look at the currency wars and trade wars that raged off and on throughout the 1930s, You'll find to some degree every nation's government that was involved in that was trying to, in a zero-sum way, help their own economy as against all of their potential competitors. But you will notice when you start to dig into some of the details of the trade wars that happened in the 30s that there were kind of like identifiable blocks or alliances. In other words, there were certain governments that, yeah, they were competing with each other and trying to screw each other you know, to some extent, but they would sometimes cooperate with each other on certain issues and things, and they weren't quite as hard on each other in terms of trade wars as they were on other governments. So, in other words, what you see is there are clearly identifiable alliances or blocks within the context of the economic wars of the 1930s. And guess what? For the most part, The lineup of who's against who and who's allied with who in the currency wars and trade wars of the 1930s matches up pretty damn closely. Very strong correlation to what the alliances and what the fault lines are once it turns into real wars at the end of the 1930s. So in other words, yeah, the US and Britain and France would in various ways, you know, try and help each other out at each other's expense during the economic wars of the 30s, but But you can also find them in some ways, in regard to some issues and whatever, cooperating with each other. On the other hand, they're tending to be, more often than not, much more hostile across the board towards countries like Germany, Japan, and Italy. And, you know, vice versa, Germany and Japan and Italy over the course of the Depression start to do uh, more and more, you know, commerce and cooperation and whatever with each other that eventually culminates in An actual alliance, right? The Axis Alliance. Whereas they're generally going to be hostile towards the U.S., Britain and France, etc. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence that you have economic warfare raging for a decade. And that the countries and governments that seem to be more or less allied at least to some extent, during those economic wars, happen to be the countries that are also allied with each other when it turns into real war, and vice versa, right? That The countries that they were most strongly opposed to in the economic wars of the 30s happen to be the countries that they are, you know, enemies of when it turns into full-fledged real war. So currency wars plus trade wars tends to lead to real wars is one way to connect the Great Depression to World War II. And another one... That I would mention is this idea of busying giddy minds with foreign quarrels. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, people who rule states and empires and what have you. Always have to have some sort of narrative as to why they're in charge. Nobody can stay in charge for a long period of time if all they really have is like brute force, right? All they really have is, I have some guys who will kill you or torture you or whatever, so you better obey me. Like, you can do that for a while. And that's always part of the game. But if that's the only tool you have in your toolbox, then your regime is very vulnerable and likely to be very temporary. If you want your regime to be stable and long-lasting, in addition to force, you have to have other tools in your toolbox. And in fact, force very often you want to keep as, like, maybe not a last resort, but certainly not a first one in most cases. It can backfire if it's overused. Instead, what you need are legitimizing narratives. These are the things that, using the means of propaganda, you put into the minds of those over whom you want to rule. So, you have to have some sort of narrative as to why are the people in charge in charge? Because you want to convince at least a significant majority of your people. Not just that your rule is based on might makes right, but that you actually should be in charge for usually a combination of both practical and moral reasons, right? Some version of I'm the most qualified person uh, to be in charge or my group is or my party is, or my institution is, but also that we have some sort of moral legitimacy. So for much of human history until relatively recently, most legitimizing narratives were primarily religious in nature. Maybe not exclusively religious in nature, but primarily. So, so and so is in charge because it's the will of the gods, or because he is a god, or, you know, some variation on those sorts of things was often the centerpiece. Now there might be other things too, like also he wins battles for us, also he, you know, uh, fights wars and wins them and brings home a bunch of loot and slaves and conquers foreign lands and all this sort of stuff, right? But a lot of it is supernatural in nature. The problem is, what happens if you're telling a legitimizing narrative and you're saying, I'm in charge because I'm the most capable of running things and I'm in charge because, you know, I'm favored by the gods. And what happens if shit happens, right? What happens if things aren't going so smooth, if times aren't so good, if your rule doesn't seem to be um, all that great from the perspective of the people over whom you're ruling, and so one of the clearest examples of this that I'm familiar with going back to ancient times is the sorts of narratives that the Egyptian pharaohs and their kind of priestly class which sort of acted in a functionally similar way to the modern corporate media in relation to their own uh, government regimes that they generally serve. So if you're looking at ancient Egypt the primary narrative typically to support the pharaoh's rule was the pharaoh is a living god and as such he's kind of like you know got the hotline so to speak with all the other gods and he's able to use his aside from you know running the kingdom smoothly and kind of keeping order and keeping uh, foreign invaders out or whatever a huge part of the pharaoh's legitimizing narrative was he makes sure that the nile does what it's supposed to do And to Egypt, the Nile was everything. The whole reason there was a fairly wealthy advanced civilization that arose there quite early in human history was because of the nature of the Nile. So the Nile is vital in that part of the world to doing any sort of agriculture, and the Nile is a river that normally is pretty well behaved it's pretty predictable most of the time you know you can predict when it's going to flood how much it's going to flood the flooding is also going to fertilize your potential agricultural fields all these sorts of things so the pharaoh when the nile is normal And is behaving the way it's supposed to, and is flooding just enough. You know, there's not a drought. It's flooding enough to irrigate your crops and fertilize them. It's not flooding so much that it's drowning you and your crops or whatever. It's behaving just right, like baby bear's porridge. Well, as long as that's happening, the Pharaoh is able to go, Yeah, that's all me. See, look at that. I'm doing such a great job pharaohing here. I'm using my pole with all the other gods, making sure the Nile does what it's supposed to do. We got a bunch of food. Everybody's happy. And people are like, Yeah. Great. The pharaoh said he'll make sure the Nile is doing what it's supposed to do. Seems to be working. Good enough for me. But, of course, we know, assuming you're not somebody who, uh, whatever you believe in terms of religion and spirituality, probably very few people walking around today that still believe in and worship the ancient Egyptian gods, you know, Anubis and all these sorts of characters, right? So assuming you're not like the last person walking around, 5,000 years later, still believing in those deities, then I would say, okay, we all know today that it's not the Pharaoh or the other Egyptian gods that's making the Nile do what it's doing. It's, you know, things that those people have no influence or control over, right? It's completely, you know, non-human controlled, like weather patterns and, you know, how much it snows in the in the mountains, um, you know, near the source of the Nile or whatever it is, right? Things over which the Pharaoh and his cronies have really no control, but people think they do. Okay, so what happens if the Nile goes through a prolonged period of not behaving properly, where it's drought or flood or alternating drought and flood, and then there's famine and whatever? Well, unfortunately, it's a tragedy of our species that the vast majority of people won't in that situation immediately go, hey, wait a minute. I think this is all bullshit, and I don't think we should have a pharaoh at all. Unfortunately, the vast majority of people won't go down that road. Instead, what they'll probably go to is, oh, this pharaoh has lost his pull with the gods or whatever, right? He's been uh, being counteracted by evil spirits or, you know, some other narrative like that. And instead of saying, maybe we ought not have a pharaoh at all, they'll say, we need a different pharaoh. Right. And then you might end up with a civil war and maybe a dynasty gets overthrown and replaced with a new dynasty. And as long as the Nile starts behaving properly again soon, the new dynasty is happy to take all the credit for it. And things are, you know, back to normal until things start acting up again. So it's sort of like a, you live by the sword, die by the sword, right? If you're in charge of a country or an empire or whatever and things are going relatively smoothly, and let's say it's really not because of anything you're doing or not doing, it's mostly just luck of circumstance. Okay, well, if you want to take all the credit for when you have good luck of circumstance and things are going well, then people are going to remember that, and if things start to go badly, again, even if it's not actually your fault, well, sorry, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Now, in those circumstances what a really smart pharaoh would do is realize that if if he can externalize the source of the problem away from himself, right, if he can project and deflect, he might be able to save his regime, even though there's drought and famine and whatever. So, a really savvy pharaoh might say, or might say through his priestly mouthpieces, look guys, Egyptian citizens, I know times are tough, and I know we've been telling you that the Pharaoh's in charge because he makes the Nile behave properly. And normally that's what he would be doing. But here's the thing. We just found out there's these foreign people that are, I don't know, look different from us. They're swarthy or whatever, and they pray to bad gods that don't like our gods. And we found out they've been sabotaging us. And so in order to make Egypt great again, we're going to have to go march on the Nubians. And we're going to have to go kill and rape and pillage and we'll get a bunch of loot and a bunch of slaves and also we'll prevent them from using their bad gods to hijack our good gods from making the Nile flood or whatever the story is, right? And guess what? Historically, that works. It's one of the oldest tricks in the book for regimes to distract from problems at home, which In some cases, maybe they didn't cause. Maybe in some cases they did. But the point is, when the people at home are unhappy, you're failing to solve their problems. They start to look at you and start to ask those dangerous questions again, not maybe we shouldn't have a king or a pharaoh or whatever, but at least as dangerous as maybe we need a different one. One of the most likely moves to get you out of that situation, if you're the pharaoh or king that's coming under fire, is to point the finger at some foreigners. Now, you can also point fingers at scapegoats within, or you could do a combination of the two. And of course, if you want to point the finger at scapegoats within your own population, you want to make sure to carefully choose groups and individuals that are already kind of like outside of the mainstream of society. Or looked down upon by much of society or whatever. So like maybe a dissenting religious group or a minority ethnic group or whatever. You say, oh, these people are sabotaging it. But man, even more effective in a lot of ways is if you can externalize. If you can project and deflect. Because guess what tends to happen most of the time when a leader who's under fire at home picks a fight with a foreign regime? Most of the time, it works. That's why leaders keep doing it. That's why they don't have to invent very many new tricks, because the old classics that they've been using for literally thousands of years still continue to work most of the time. And if anything, they'll work even better now a lot of the time, because now there's so much more in terms of capabilities for regimes to propagandize their subjects. So, a modern-day ruler has way more tools in their toolbox than an ancient or medieval uh, monarch does to manipulate their subjects' beliefs and thoughts. So as soon as you start going to war, all those people that were pissed off at your rule and the thought, man, maybe this guy doesn't know what he's doing or whatever, suddenly they'll forget about all that. They'll forget about the economy being crap or not having enough food, and they'll happily go line up behind your banner and go march off to kill foreigners in the name of fixing the problem. And they'll forget all about the problems they had. So war is the ultimate distraction from problems at home. And if you can recall back that Shakespeare quote that I started this episode with, that's exactly what Henry IV is saying in that quote. So, I won't reread the entire passage here, but basically, you've got the old king more or less on his deathbed, and he's talking to his son, the prince, who's going to be king any day now, and he's kind of telling his son... Hey, I had to do some dirty tricks to get this throne, but you're just sort of inheriting it, so maybe you'll have an easier time. But even so, you might want to know some of my tricks to stay in power. And basically what the king is saying in that passage that I read is he says, Look, if you ever get into a situation where, you know, the peasants are unhappy, the nobles are looking at you suspiciously saying maybe you shouldn't be in charge, that kind of thing starting to think dangerous thoughts about maybe trying to replace you with a different monarch or a different dynasty. No problem. Here's the move. Start a fight with another country. Start a foreign war. And guess what? Most of the people who are criticizing you and maybe plotting against you, most of them will shut up and line up and go to war on your behalf. And everybody will forget all about all the things they had in terms of complaints against your leadership. So the really key phrase in that passage is, be it thy course to busy, giddy minds with foreign quarrels, that action, hence borne out, may waste the memory of the former days. Be it thy course to busy, giddy minds with foreign quarrels. And the king, by the way, in that scene basically says that he started one of the crusades for just that purpose. Like he basically just, you know, drummed up a war in the Holy Land, in order to make everybody at home forget about all their complaints about his leadership. So we know that this is a move that rulers have been doing literally for thousands of years. You know, there are some wars that we definitely know of that kind of have that origin, even going back to ancient times. And I suspect there's a lot more wars that that's a big part of what was going on, that we just, you know, don't have the, uh, the inside baseball or the documents to prove 100%. But, you know, I'm certain that more than a couple of Roman emperors started fights with various barbarians in order to distract from, you know, bad economy, bad harvests at home. And honestly, I suspect, obviously we have no way of ever knowing this, but I really strongly suspect that this move of starting fights with foreigners in order to distract from problems at home probably goes back to like Neolithic or even Paleolithic cavemen tribes. So I can just imagine theoretically, right, let's say we've got a, we're a a tribe of cavemen and I'm in charge. And part of why I'm in charge is because I'm big and strong and I also have a bunch of big strong guys that work for me that might club you if you disobey me. But again, that alone is not going to be enough to keep me in power for a long period of time. So in order to make my authority more stable and in the eyes of my tribesmen more legitimate... I come up with a story, and I'm aided and abetted in this maybe by my shaman, my priests, or whatever. And my story is, I'm not just in charge because I'm the biggest and strongest and got a big club. I'm also in charge because I've got a hotline to the gods. Now, this, by the way, this move probably wouldn't work in a very small hunter-gatherer tribe, but when you're starting to get to the level of, like, fairly large chiefdoms, I think this move might work pretty well. So anyway, you say, I'm not just in charge of this chiefdom, because I'm big and strong, and I have a bunch of big, strong friends. No, it's also that I have supernatural power. You see, me and my shamans, we have the ability to do the right rituals and whatever to make sure that, I don't know, the woolly mammoths stay plentiful and we continue to have really good hunting. And so that's why you should do what I say and, you know, let me live in the finest hut and give me some of your stuff or, you know, whatever it is. Now, what happens? Let's say that's been working for a while. The mammoths have been plentiful and everybody seems happy and they're like, yeah, this guy's in charge. Times are good. Therefore, that correlation must be causation. Of course, obviously, it doesn't have to be causation, but people are dumb that way. So... I have high approval ratings as a Neolithic chief. But then, what happens if the mammoths and other big games start to disappear? Uh Uh-oh. This is like when the Nile starts to not behave properly. Now, I've got nothing to do with this, presumably, right? Assuming that I haven't, like, drastically upped our harvest and we're actually depleting them. Let's say it's just something that has nothing to do with my rule one way or the other. Let's say the climate is changing. Right? The Ice Age is ending, and therefore mammoths and other gigantic fauna are just simply dying off. Well, we don't know this as cave people, right? We don't have the science to tell us this, and we see everything through a kind of supernatural lens. But also, I've been telling these people for years that the plentifulness of mammoths is on me. I should get the credit. Well, live by the sword, die by the sword. I've been taking all the credit for the mammoth being abundant, and now they're disappearing. Well, guess what? People are going to start looking at me, maybe even some of my former sidekicks and henchmen are going to start looking at me going, Man, Ugg shouldn't be our chief anymore, because Ugg said that he's the chief in large part because he ensures the plentifulness of game, and game is becoming scarce. And again, tragedy of our species, most of them probably won't go, maybe we shouldn't have a chief like this. You know, maybe the entire concept and institution is a problem. No, instead, probably what they'll all do is say, we just need a new chief. Now, let's say me, Ugg, as the tribe uh, chieftain here. Let's say I'm a little bit savvier than most cavemen, and I figured out, maybe I'm the first one to figure out one of these oldest tricks in the book, and I go, oh, wait, I know how to get out of this. Maybe I have a little powwow with my shamans, my my priests, or whatever, to make sure we're all coordinating the narrative. And I come out and I say, Me, Ugg. Me in charge, because I make game plentiful. Now we all know game no longer plentiful. Me, Ugg, know you want to blame me, but here's the thing. Me just found out that that other tribe on the other side of Hill, you know, the ones that are. Kinda of shifty looking and, uh, with the weird hairdos and the unibrows or whatever. The ones that pray to the different gods in us that suck. Well, guess what? That tribe, they reason game gone. They and their bad gods making our game go away to their side of the hill. Therefore, me, Ugg, say, we make tribe great again by going to war against that tribe and their evil gods. We punish them for sabotaging my rule. We kill, rape, and enslave that tribe. They no longer pray to their bad gods and the mammoth return. Most likely, everybody shuts up about complaining about my rule. Most likely, based on the historical evidence, most of my tribe are going to forget about complaining about me being in charge. Instead, they're going to project it all. On the tribe on the other side of the hill that looks different from us and prays to different gods or whatever. And as we're going to war, they're going to forget all about their problems at home. They're going to get completely distracted by the conflict. And, you know, maybe they'll have an opportunity to get some loot and some slaves or whatever it is. And so even if the mammoths don't come back... If we loot and enslave the people we're going to war against enough, it might be enough of a cushion that people's personal economies improve sufficiently that I'm able to live out the rest of my years as chief without anybody trying to overthrow me or undermine me, and I'm able to die peacefully as an old caveman, and my son, Ugg Jr., will take over. And maybe, then on my deathbed, like King Henry IV, I can tell my son— about this cool trick that I figured out. Be at thy course to busy giddy minds with foreign quarrels. So looking at the Great Depression in relation to World War II, I don't think it's a coincidence that after a decade of seemingly uncurable economic depression, various governments around the world start looking to go to war, start getting itchy trigger fingers, start really blaming a lot of their economic problems on other nations. Now, in the 20th century, relatively few rulers, with a few exceptions here and there, relatively few rulers have based their claim to legitimacy on explicitly religious justifications. I mean, it might be, you know, rhetorically a little nod here and there to that idea, but typically that's not the dominant thing to the degree it was in ancient or medieval times. By the 20th century, rulers and regimes primarily rely on kind of two main narrative tactics in their propaganda. One is some form of embodying the nation or the will of the people. Now, in democratic regimes, obviously all the rituals of elections and things are an important part of this process. And so a ruler or a ruling party or regime can say, well, you know, in the last election, uh, we won a majority of the votes that were cast, therefore we are legitimate. But even in dictatorships, very often a story like that, even in, in regimes where there's no elections or there's elections, but they're clearly, you know, rigged kind of one party elections or whatever. There still is often rhetorically some idea of the leader or the party or whatever embodying the nation. All you got to do is just look at the rhetoric of, say, Mussolini or Hitler or, if you want to go further back, Napoleon. But in addition to this idea of legitimizing their authority by making some sort of claim that they embody the nation or they embody the will of the people or whatever, another major justification for a regime's legitimacy in the modern era is competence. In other words, they'll say, we're in charge because we're the best and the brightest. We're in charge because we know how to solve your problems. We're in charge because we know how to create prosperity. And again, you live by the sword, die by the sword. If you're making those claims that you and your regime are competent and know how to run the economy and know how to solve people's problems, well, things are going relatively smoothly, even if it's not really because of anything you're doing. It might be, but maybe it isn't. People are going to tend to automatically give you the credit whether you deserve it or not. But then the flip side is, if things start to go badly, and especially if things go badly for an extended period of time, and you've been saying for years, well, we're in charge because we know how to fix the Great Depression, let's say. Well, if five, ten years go by and the Great Depression ain't fixed, guess what? More and more people are going to start looking at your authority going, why is this person or this party or whatever in charge? They said they were going to fix this. They haven't. And the reality is, no government really did a good job in the 1930s of actually solving the Great Depression and its effects for their people. None of them did. Now, some did a little better or a little bit worse in dealing with some of the worst symptoms of the Depression, but nobody really fixed it, quote-unquote, in the 1930s. And so as a result, by the time you get to the latter part of the 1930s, Lots of leaders, and not just of the Axis powers, were starting to get more and more belligerent. Now, it's true that the Axis governments are the ones that were the most kind of ahead of the curve on it and the most, you know, blatant and extreme about it, for sure. But the reality is that all the major governments of the world, by the latter part of the 1930s, were starting to get kind of itchy trigger figures to one extent or another. And a really eye-opening book on this that covers the lead up to World War II in ways that you normally do not see in most mainstream sources, that shows you there's a lot of blame to go around and that it wasn't just the Axis powers that were kind of starting to get belligerent by the late 30s. A very good book on this is the book Human Smoke by Nicholson Baker. And I'll just leave it at that. Say so if, if you want to get some details on just how much it wasn't just the Axis powers, like, yeah, they were the, the worst and you know, the most belligerent, But they weren't the only ones who were starting to get grumpy by the latter part of the 30s. Read Human Smoke. And that's one of the things you'll get out of that book. It really is one of those books that uh, there's several that I know of and undoubtedly a bunch more I don't. But it's one of those books that like really kind of makes you think differently about World War II, And even in the case of the United States. You know, the standard narrative is like, oh, FDR was this, you know, isolationist just going along with American opinion, and only at the last minute, you know, before Pearl Harbor, did he start to kind of get cured of his isolationism and want to go to war and whatever. The reality is that FDR was actually pretty belligerent in his desires and thoughts and plans by the mid-30s, if not earlier. He just kept it quiet. He kept it secret, he kept it behind closed doors, but there's been a number of of books that have shown various aspects of this. So, among other things, FDR had had long-standing, just sort of ingrained prejudices against both Germany and Japan, going back decades, like going back to when he was a young man. Long before the German and Japanese governments started doing all the horrible things we think about them doing in the 30s and 40s. And partly this was just sort of ingrained prejudice because FDR was part of the northeastern WASP establishment. He was a Harvard-educated guy like his distant cousin Teddy Roosevelt. He was, if I remember right, he was in Fly Club at Harvard, whereas Teddy Roosevelt was in the arguably somewhat more famous and prestigious Porcelain Club. But those are both super elite Harvard clubs. And in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. One of the defining elements of the Northeastern WASP establishment in America was Anglophilia and uh, Teutonophobia. So you you generally find them being just sort of inherently prejudiced in favor of the British Empire and against the Germans. And obviously this comes into play with American entry into World War I, that the American elite already had the attitude of being very pro-British and very anti-German just instinctively. And of course, FDR was Assistant Secretary of the Navy in the Wilson administration during World War I, in which position, obviously, he's presiding over part of the war against Germany. So he already had pre-existing German prejudices. He already had experience, his primary experience in the federal government before becoming president was being Assistant Secretary of the Navy during World War I. So he already had tons of anti-German prejudice even before the Nazis ever took Germany over. And this only increased once the Nazis took over. But we now know that FDR actually had some desire to go to war against Germany as early as the mid-30s, say like around 1935. Now, in 1935, what would be his rationale for wanting to go to war against Germany, privately, behind closed doors? Of course, he didn't express those desires publicly because he knew they would be politically unpopular at the time. Well... The main thing he was pissed at the Nazi regime for in the mid-30s wasn't anything to do with the steps they were already taking domestically to, you know, oppress Jews and other groups on their shit list. And, of course, in the mid-30s, Germany hadn't attacked any of its neighbors yet, so you couldn't chalk it up to that. No, a major part of why FDR was already desiring to eventually go to war against Germany in the mid-30s, was that Germany was trying to increase its commerce with Latin America. And FDR's attitude was like, hey, that's kind of like our preserve. You know, the only empire that's allowed to uh, penetrate and dominate Latin American markets is Team America. And you can see this throughout the 30s, as the situation for Jews got worse and worse in Nazi Germany, FDR refused to take in large numbers of Jewish refugees. He could have saved a bunch of lives by taking in a bunch of refugees before World War II actually started, and he didn't. There are entire books on this. So you can't even say, oh, FDR, you know, wanted to go to war against Germany in the mid-30s because he was just so appalled by what was happening domestically already in Germany to the Jews and others. It's like, no, the, the evidence doesn't show that was his main beef with Germany in like 1935 at all. It was economic conflict. So anyway, to be clear, I'm not saying that these economic aspects, including not just taking over resources and land, but also the general tendency of currency wars plus trade wars lead to real wars, or the whole idea of busy and giddy minds with foreign quarrels in order to distract your population from problems at home, I'm not saying these are the only reasons why World War I happened when and as it did. Wars are very complicated, and particularly wars like World War—sorry, I think I said World War I a moment ago, I meant World War II. This is what happens when I'm going largely off the cuff. But particularly a big war where there's a bunch of different governments that are involved in it, it becomes really messy to where you can't really realistically say with any plausibility, oh, this one reason is why this thing happened. It's like, no, each government that participates has its own unique mixture of motivations when you zero in on the main individuals in that government, the main sort of groups, parties, alliances, interest groups, whatever. There's always a complicated mixture of reasons why the leaders of various countries decide to go to war against each other. My point here is just to say that even World War II, which you're often led to believe is like the most clear-cut, cut-and-dry, pure good, pure bad, it's all about just morality, even with World War II, that's not the case when you dig into the nitty-gritty details and especially when you dig into... A lot of these often neglected things of economics and economic disputes and conflicts. And then the political economic conflict of leaders wanting to project and deflect. To externalize, to say, man, I'm trying to solve your problems. And I know you're unhappy because, man, I've been in charge for six, seven, eight years and the depression still sucks. But it's because of these other countries over here. They're the reason why my brilliant policies and leadership haven't solved the problem yet. Now, I probably don't need to bludgeon you over the head too much with the connections of all of this to current events, so I won't spend much time doing it, other than to say there are some disturbing parallels between the 1930s and right now, and you see economic wars heating up. In addition to that, you see the desire of leaders of governments to do both forms of Projecting and deflecting. They're doing it domestically and against foreigners. So, why are things so shitty, you know, after a year of the Biden, a year and a half of the Biden administration? Why are things uh, going from bad to worse? Well, it's because of their domestic political opponents who are all just a bunch of crazy Nazis and also due to Russia invading Ukraine. That's it. And so, what do you see them doing? You see them ratcheting up assaults on various civil liberties and constitutional rights at home, primarily, though not exclusively, directed against their strongest political opponents and critics, as they simultaneously ratchet up tensions against multiple potential opponents internationally, obviously with the big two being China and Russia. And it's interesting to look at the economic alliances that are happening right now in the economic warfare that's going on. Right. Oh, and by the way, you know, it's not just the Biden administration using the Ukraine conflict to deflect from their own failures of leadership at home. You see this in many Western countries. Other than Biden, the most belligerent Western uh, leader that I can think of is Boris Johnson in the UK, and it's pretty obvious that he's also trying to busy giddy minds with foreign quarrels. So anyway, when you look at the kind of alliances, for lack of a better term, in the economic wars being waged as sanctions get ratcheted up and all these sorts of things. You've got China and Russia, you know, not super tight, but increasingly coalescing together and a little bit more loosely, potentially with some other countries that are big enough to still matter, like India and maybe a few others in in Latin America and Asia. And then you've got the U.S., Western Europe, Canada... And, you know, a handful of Asian countries like Japan, South Korea, and so forth. And so, to me, there's this eerie similarity where the battle lines in the economic wars are hardening. Now, I'm not saying World War III is inevitable, and I certainly don't hope it happens. But, if I was an historian in the year 2200, looking back, and... World War III had happened, and by some miracle, it didn't end up being nuclear holocaust, where, you know, virtually all life on Earth dies. Let's say World War III happens, it's pretty bad, but civilization survives. If I was a researcher in 2200 looking back on right now, under those circumstances, I would not at all be surprised to see very similar parallels to what happened in the 1930s as currency wars and trade wars lead to real wars, as leaders increasingly turn to war as the ultimate distraction to busy, giddy minds. And I'd also not be surprised to see that the alliances of the economic wars ended up almost perfectly reflecting the alliances once it turned into actual war. Most leaders are going to tend to resort to war after prolonged problems at home that result in severe criticism and undermining of their authority and legitimacy amongst their own population, especially if it even includes some of their own kind of like fellow elites. But it's not inevitable. If you have a leader who is a decent human being and who is smart enough to understand how these things work, you might actually occasionally get somebody who does the right thing, even if it costs them politically. And a great example of an American president not going to war because of economic problems and so forth is actually a president who often gets pretty low ratings by the establishment. And the president in question is Martin Van Buren. Martin Van Buren is a president that most people know very little about. And like I said, he generally gets rated pretty low by the establishment when they do their presidential rankings, which most of the time, I mean, occasionally I'll agree with their ratings on somebody, but most of the time, my own ratings of the various presidencies are the inverse of theirs, because it seems to me like they tend to rate highest the presidents who are the worst on things like peace, freedom, and prosperity. And vice versa. So a lot of the presidents that they rank as either, you know, kind of mediocre or even bad, I think are actually... Pretty good by comparison with their competitors. So, presidents, for example, like Warren Harding. And another one that comes to mind is Martin Van Buren. So, Martin Van Buren was a 19th century Democratic Party politician from New York. He was actually one of the founders of the Jacksonian Democratic Party, and he served in the Jackson administration in various capacities and then was sort of like Jackson's successor when Jackson stepped down in 1836 and didn't seek a third term, following the Washington example, of course. So, Martin Van Buren easily won with Jackson's election. Now, Van Buren was not like the charismatic sort of politician that Jackson was. He was more of like the quiet, um, you know, backroom wheeler-dealer and organizer. He's often considered in terms of, like, organizing the, the real founder of the Democratic Party. Like, Jackson was the charismatic leader around whom it coalesced, but Van Buren was the guy who is usually given more credit than anybody else for kind of getting it organized. So anyway, he comes in and has the bad luck of having a major economic depression start pretty much simultaneously with his presidency. This is the so-called Panic of 1837 and resulting economic depression which I believe was the worst economic crash in American history up until that time. Now, the reasons why this panic and depression happened in the late 1830s were complicated, and I don't think Van Buren personally deserves a huge amount of the blame for it. I actually think Jackson deserves some of the blame. Jackson, of course, had famously waged war against the National Bank, the Second Bank of the United States, and... Ultimately, he blocked its renewal, the renewal of its charter, and then he also, it still had some time on its existing charter, but he wasn't content with that. He ordered the federal government to remove its deposits at the National Bank and instead place them in various state banks, essentially emasculating the bank even though it continued to exist until its previous charter expired. Now, I'm an anti-national central bank sort of guy, I definitely agree with Jackson wanting to get rid of the Bank of the United States, but I think he did not have a good alternative as to how to then handle the government's finances. Because he simply withdrew them and then parceled them out to some state banks, which were just sort of like miniature state-level versions of the National Bank, and all the same problems of the National Bank, of it being sometimes reckless with money, of it being corrupt, whatever. All of those things applied equally to state banks. And in some cases, state banks might have been even worse. So to me, it's kind of like an out of the frying pan into the fire situation. And it turns out a lot of those state banks that get all this new federal money injected into them are even more kind of reckless with, you know, making excessive easy loans and whatever like that and get a classic kind of Austrian business cycle situation where there's uh, after Jackson does this, there's a credit bubble that eventually pops Now, there are other reasons for the Panic of 1837 and the resulting economic depression, you know, including some international trade factors having to do with, like, the cotton market globally, right? So, you know, as is always the case with these things, there's always kind of multiple things going on, right? Wars and depressions, one of the things they have in common is there's usually, you know, maybe you can trace back to, like, one ultimate cause, but there's usually a whole bunch of other proximate causes that complicate matters, when you're trying to dig into like what really caused this it's usually not a simple one thing really when you get into the details but be that as it may because the crash and the depression really kind of like kicks off under van buren's administration he of course as the guy in charge always will rightly or wrongly he gets a lot of heat politically if they had approval polls back then his would have been low for pretty much all of his presidency By the way, I want to give credit to and direct you to if you want a bit more detail on Van Buren and some of the positive aspects of his presidency. I still have some criticisms. There's no president where I agree with and endorse every single thing he did. Even the presidents I like more than most, I still have individual specific things where I'm like, man, I thought this was bad or I thought this policy was bad or whatever. In the case of Van Buren, I will say that The main thing that I'm aware of that I disagree with that happened under him was he continued the wars against the Seminole Indians in Florida, which he inherited from Jackson. These are the Second Seminole Wars. And of course, I'm against that. I think that was an unjust war and the Seminole should have been left alone to live where they were living. On the flip side, though, honestly, any president, any politician of that time period that was elected in the middle of the Second Seminole War would have continued the war. There was like no mainstream American politician who would have really just like, you know, immediately shut it down and made peace with the Seminole once the conflict was raging. But anyway, where I was first tipped off to some of the positive aspects, at least if you're coming at it from a kind of libertarian-ish or classical liberal point of view, trying to evaluate the presidents, that first turned me on to Van Buren might actually be a pretty good guy, all things considered was the chapter in the excellent book, Reassessing the Presidency, which, if memory serves, I believe is edited by John Denson. There's a chapter in there about the good aspects of Van Buren as president by the great historian and economist Jeffrey Hummel, who also wrote one of my favorite books on the U.S. Civil War, Emancipating Slaves, Enslaving Free Men. So he wrote a chapter in Reassessing the Presidency on... Van Buren, taking a revisionist look, saying, actually, if you come at it from a classical liberal or libertarian point of view, Van Buren's a pretty decent president. So I'd refer you to that. And you could actually find uh, the Mises Institute, I believe, still has a PDF version of this book available just for free. So if you want to go look that book up and you don't mind reading a PDF, you can go and read this chapter for yourself. So Van Buren comes in, the economy's bad, his approval, had they been able to measure it scientifically, would have been in the toilet. Most presidents would have been at least somewhat tempted to look for war to distract. Now, as I said, the Second Seminole War was raging, and from the Seminoles' point of view, this was a big deal. But from most Americans' point of view, unless you lived in Florida, it was pretty easy to not even pay attention to it. You know, it's similar to, like, Americans, um, you know, really paying attention to or caring about the war in Yemen or the war in Somalia. Like, it's just not even on their radar. So, the Second Seminole War wasn't really going to serve the purpose of busy and giddy minds. You would need a bigger war that affected people more, that was more dramatic and whatever. Well, there actually were two. Potential conflicts that Van Buren could have picked, two fights he could have picked during his presidency that probably would have served the purpose of busying giddy minds with foreign quarrels and distracting from the bad economy at home that was hurting his popularity and which would ultimately doom him to one term. The first potential war that he could have had if he had wanted it was with Mexico over Texas. So the short version is that Texas had had its rebellion and won its independence, but there were two problems remaining. One was the Mexican government, after the war was over, the Mexican government basically said, we don't recognize Texas's secession and independence as legit. And uh, I believe part of their reasoning was because the Texans had literally extracted a treaty granting them independence from General Santa Ana at gunpoint. And secondly, aside from the fact that the Mexican government was claiming that they no longer recognized the independence of Texas as legitimate, there also was a remaining border issue. There was a dispute over where exactly, even if Texas were to be recognized by Mexico as an independent republic, there was a dispute over where exactly was the border between Texas and the rest of Mexico. Now, the leaders of Texas were very paranoid and feeling very vulnerable, even though they had won their little rebellion They still were a tiny, uh, lightly populated area, vastly outnumbered by the rest of Mexico, and were worried about maybe getting reconquisted. And so the leaders of Texas, once they won their independence as the Lone Star Republic, they immediately tried to join the United States. Now, Jackson, in the latter days of his presidency, had been all on board with yes to absorb Texas. But the process isn't completed when he leaves office and hands it over to Van Buren. Now, understand, everybody in the know kind of realized, like, oh yeah, if the U.S. annexes Texas, sooner or later, there probably will be a war between the U.S. and Mexico. So anyway, Van Buren comes in, and Van Buren it's one of the few places where he directly reversed policy on something Jackson had done. Van Buren hits the brakes on the U.S. annexing Texas. Now, this is a rare thing in American history, especially this time period. Normally, the U.S. government in this time period, in the, you know, early to mid-19th century, they're grabbing up every territory in their neighborhood they can, right? They're taking over Florida, they're, you know, making the Louisiana Purchase, like all these different things. And yet, here's a case where you have a territory, Texas, basically throwing itself at Team America. And a rare case where the president at the time, Van Buren, is like, Yeah, no thanks. Now, why is he saying no thanks? Van Buren had two primary reservations about taking in Texas, both of which, by the way, are later proven correct once it actually happens. The first was he said, if we take in Texas, we'll inevitably have to fight a war with Mexico over it and over its border. And basically, on kind of like moral grounds, he's like, this is an unnecessary war of territorial expansion. It's very interesting. Um, If you read, I think Hummel quotes Van Buren, some of the statements he made on this. Um, Maybe it was in regard to the other wars or potential wars I'm going to mention. But basically, Van Buren said the United States should hold itself to a higher standard than other nations and not go to war for the cynical reasons of just, you know, taking someone else's land. That's incredible. Especially given the fact that he knew that if he went to war against Mexico, first off, that's a war the U.S. is probably going to win, hands down, as it did in the 1840s. And secondly, he was a very politically savvy guy. He had to have known, and there's reason to believe he did know, that if he went to war against Mexico over Texas, that would make his popularity shoot up and he'd probably win a second term. But he decided it's not morally justified. So I'm going to say no to Texas. The other reason he turned Texas down was because he believed, and again, this was proven right eventually, he believed that by annexing Texas, it would bring the whole North versus South, slave versus free idea back front and center in American politics, and that this would bitterly divide the country and maybe even lead to civil conflict. And he looked to things like, for example, uh, the Missouri crisis of 1820, And some other things that had happened in the 1830s, where every now and then the tensions between North and South over which territories have slavery and which don't and a whole host of related issues like the tariff had flared up really dramatically. And Van Buren was personally anti-slavery, but he was kind of moderate on it, and he certainly wanted to avoid bitter political and potential real conflict amongst the American people. And so for those reasons, he actually turned down Texas. And it would be the guy who came uh, two spots after him into the White House, John Tyler, who would actually bring Texas into the U.S. And guess what? It did. Within a few years, actually within only about one year, the U.S. annexing Texas did lead to war between the U.S. and Mexico. And it did also really kick off the reignition of North versus South hatreds in the late 1840s, which then over the course of a little more than a decade snowballed into the biggest bloodbath in American history as far as American lives are concerned, the Nazi civil war. And you can go listen to my whole series on that if you want excruciating detail on how horrible that conflict was. And then the other conflict that Van Buren could have had that he decided to avoid was a potential war with the British Empire over the border between the U.S. and Canada. And if I remember right, I think there were actually multiple border disputes between the U.S. and Canada during Van Buren's tenure. I think there was actually one in the more kind of Western areas, and then also there was some dispute in the East over the border between, I guess it would be Maine and New Brunswick. Now, the war potentially against the British Empire would have been a terrible idea, right? From a purely cynical strategic point of view, the U.S. probably would have lost that war badly. All you gotta do is go study how badly the War of 1812 went for Team America, and then you realize, like, as much as the Americans got their asses kicked in almost every battle of that war, the war still somehow ended in in a draw as far as the bargaining table. How? Well, the U.S. fought Britain in the War of 1812 at a time when probably 80-90% to of Britain's resources were tied up fighting Napoleon the whole time. And even under those circumstances, the Americans did very badly on the battlefield. So the idea that by like the late 1830s, going to war against the British Empire would be a great idea. It would have been an even dumber idea than it was in 1812. Because the Brits were no longer tied up with most of their resources fighting Napoleon. And if anything, the British Empire was significantly stronger overall in the 1830s than it was in 1812. So from a strategic point of view, it would have been a dumb move. Whereas the Mexican war option, at least from a strategic point of view, setting aside morality and all that, would have been a smarter move because the US is probably going to beat Mexico hands down, as they did in the 1840s. But again, you know, had Van Buren gone to war against the British Empire, at least initially, it would have caused his popularity to go up, maybe win him a second term, and maybe, you know, if the war goes badly in his second term, whatever. And we know that there were advisors. There were advisors to Van Buren that were urging him to pick a fight and go to war, in part to distract everybody from the bad economy and to make his popularity go up. And Van Buren, knowing this and being a very politically savvy operator, decided on primarily moral grounds that going to war simply to try and distract from problems at home and make his popularity go up was wrong. So Van Buren is a rare case of a president I can think of, who refused to busy giddy minds with foreign quarrels. Another one I'll mention a bit more briefly, just because I've talked about it on some other episodes of this podcast, is Grover Cleveland. Another one of my, you know, in my book, least bad U.S. presidents in American history. Cleveland, also in his non-consecutive second term, Cleveland had a bad economic depression going on. And like Van Buren, he was getting a lot of blame for it, and his popularity was taking a lot of hits over it. And in the case of Cleveland during his second term, that was when you had the big rebellion in Cuba against Spain and the Spanish counterinsurgency warfare against that. And this was what the warmongers of that time, the large policy guys, the sort of proto-neocons, Guys like Teddy Roosevelt and Henry Cabot Lodge and their whole cabal, what I often call the large policy clique, those guys were using that conflict in Cuba as their excuse to want to go to war against Spain. Now, it was just their excuse. Their real motivations were they wanted to take territory from the Spanish Empire. That's why one of their first moves, once the U.S. goes to war under McKinley against Spain, supposedly over Cuba, one of their first moves is to invade the Philippines. It's like, yeah, I I can tell what this war is really about for you. Right. Uh, Yeah, you say it's all about you care about the suffering of Cuban civilians, but uh, yeah, I don't think so. So anyway, during Cleveland's second term, there was a meeting he had with some congressional leaders, basically the Warhawks of the time led by Massachusetts Senator Henry Cabot Lodge. And basically the gist of the meeting was that Lodge more or less said to Cleveland, um, he knew Grover Cleveland was a strict constructionist, a guy who was very much about let's stick to the Constitution. And so Lodge kind of says to Cleveland, hey, Mr. President, I know that you say you don't want to go to war with Spain over Cuba, but I also know you're a big proponent of the Constitution, and the Constitution says that it is we, the Congress, who gets to declare war. So if we can pony up the votes, we might just go ahead and declare war against Spain, whether you want it or not. To which Cleveland's response was, you are absolutely correct. If you have the votes, you can pass a declaration of war against Spain. However, the same constitution that says you can do that also says I'm the commander in chief of the United States Armed Forces, and I'm telling you right now if you pass a declaration of war against Spain, I will refuse to deploy any military force against them. And at that, Lodge knew that Cleveland was a man of his word and a man of principle, and he knew that Cleveland wasn't going to budge on this. Cleveland had decided that it was wrong. To go to war against Spain nominally over Cuba, but in reality to try and just grab up as much of the Spanish Empire's leftovers as you could. Now, Cleveland did do the famous, what's often called yanking of the British Empire's tail, where, you know, he talked tough against the British over the border between, what was it, Venezuela and British Guiana. And historians widely believe, and I think probably rightly, that he did that to score some political points at home with groups like Irish Americans, an important part of the Democratic Party at the time and to distract from the economic depression that was happening during his second term. But notice, even though he did do a little bit of that, it was ultimately just a little bit of talk, and then he eventually did the right rational thing and negotiated with Britain over the issue and solved it diplomatically. So, Cleveland is another rare case I can think of, of an American president who's facing political problems and unpopularity due to a bad economy at home, who has the opportunity to busy giddy minds with foreign quarrels. Who even has some of his own advisors urging him to do just that for cynical political reasons. But who draws the line and says, no. Even though it might help my political capital, even in some cases where it's a war I think will easily win. It's not right. and I won't do it. Now it's true that in both cases, with Van Buren and Cleveland People come after them that do eventually do the exact wars they were trying to avoid, at least uh, with Van Buren in regard to Mexico and with Cleveland in regard to Spain. But that doesn't, to me, take away from the degree to which I think that Cleveland and Van Buren, if you're someone who's, you know, generally in favor of peace and who thinks that war ought to be avoided unless, like, someone is actually invading you that these guys are heroes for taking those stands. And it's something that most presidents would not do in those circumstances. And all I can say is, looking at our current leadership crop and our current administration, do you really think they have the integrity and the courage, the political courage, of a Van Buren or a Cleveland to say no to a war? Even though it might do a huge amount to distract people from problems at home? Or do you think that the current leadership would take the easy route, even if it leads to a bloodbath, the route of busying giddy minds with foreign quarrels?